Hey there, folks. This is Dan Figella here with the Tech Emergence Podcast, where we bring you to the intersection of technology and psychology. And today we're going to be focusing specifically on neuroscience. I'm lucky enough to have Hal Blumenfeld on the line with me right now. He's professor of neurology, neurobiology, and neurosurgery, as well as being the director of the Yale Clinical Neuroscience Imaging Center down there in New Haven, Connecticut. Hal, how are you? I'm doing terrific, Dan. Thanks very much. Yes, indeed. Glad to have you on. I, I wanted to start uh, off with you here, and I think I've done this with the last two or three folks we've had in the neuroscience field. As to what you see, Hal, as somebody who's clearly as about as immersed in this domain as, as one can be uh, down there at Yale, what you see as having been some of the biggest kind of leaps and bounds in neuroscience in the last five to ten years, where, what do you think have been the most relevant advancements um, in this past decade of neuroscience? Well, I think the most exciting progress that's been made in neuroscience is, I think, a fundamental thing about humanity that uh, is a mystery that everyone wonders about, and that is, what is the relationship between brain activity and conscious thought? That's one of the fundamental remaining mysteries, you know, along with... uh, with um, you know the universe and its infinity and and, uh, and time and when does it begin and end yes. and, and then we all wonder you know okay how does that stuff that I have inside of my head relate to the feelings thoughts experiences that I have every day and that makes my life meaningful and it has not just profound uh, importance for us as as people who wonder and ponder about life and the meaning uh, of what we're doing but also it has fantastically important uh, significance in a practical sense because uh, when, uh, God forbid, someone has a problem with their ability to be conscious, um, when someone temporarily loses consciousness like they do during an epileptic seizure, yeah. or when they lose consciousness in a long-term way because of a brain injury or some other kind of problem, that has a profound effect on their humanity and their ability to, to function as human beings. Sure. So the exciting advances, I think, that have happened in the past five or ten years are that we're really beginning to answer the questions of what is the relationship between brain activity and conscious thought? How does that happen in the brain? What makes it work? How does it get turned off when it's affected by, by disorders? And how can we potentially turn it back on so that consciousness can be normal? Again, people can resume their 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 functioning as human beings in the world. Huh? And and how? Where where in terms of neuroscience uh, specifically, in terms of developments or imaging techniques or or uh, particular you know biochemical understandings, where where have we begun to grasp that correlation most clearly in the past decade, where we didn't before? Where is that traction really picking up now? I think the exciting advances are really in looking at the network approach to understanding the brain and looking at the brain as a network and understanding that for something as wide-reaching as consciousness to happen, you really need the whole brain network or most of the brain, widespread aspects of the brain are needed to do things that carry out all the different aspects of consciousness. Because what is consciousness after all? It's not just one thing. It's not just your ability to see or to hear or to speak or to move your arms and legs. It's the thing that regulates your overall ability to do all of those things to a greater or lesser extent. When you wake up in the morning, you make a transition from being you know, asleep and lying there and not being able to do any of those things, and then you can wake up and do the, all those things. So it's systems that regulate the whole network in the brain um, and make them all integrate together and work together uh, at a higher level when you wake up and then at an even higher level when you reach a state of awareness and alertness and you're able to reflect and understand and plan what you're going to do next. So 
taking a network approach and using the fantastically exciting advances that we've had using uh, computational neuroscience and, as you mentioned, brain imaging and electrical measurements, recordings from the brains, which all capitalize on the huge growth of, of computational power in recent years, uh, have really brought us these advances, enabling us to analyze the brain as a network, look at parts of the brain, the surface of the brain, that interact and communicate and talk with deep parts of the brain that are critical for arousal, for making us awake. The, the switch, the, this, there's a switch that's, that's been recognized for a long time, that, that rests, that lives, that resides deep in the, in the middle of the brain, the, an area called the brain stem, which is like the stem of a cauliflower where the rest of the brain comes off the top. Deep in the brain, the brain stem, and then another part of the brain, the, what's called the inner chamber or the bedroom of the brain, the thalamus. Mm-hmm. Those areas of the brain uh, is where the switch resides that can be either turned on or off. And when that gets turned on, the whole rest of the brain network, including the cortex and the other parts, all start to interact and create consciousness. When that switch gets flipped off, consciousness is, is turned down and, and we lose consciousness. And it's not a, um, it's, it's a kind of thing that, that, that is not a smooth, continuous thing. And we all experience this. It happens in, in sort of Gradations, sudden jumps yeah. where you can make rapid transitions from one state to another state. And so networks behave in a, in a fashion that is not linear. In other words, it's not always smooth and continuous. Sometimes there are big transitions that can happen with small changes where the network goes from one state being asleep, for example, or in a coma, God forbid, or losing consciousness during seizure, and then transitioning to being in a wake state or vice versa. And some of these networks, network mechanisms, I think, are the most exciting advances we've been able to make in recent years uh, in terms of really understanding how consciousness works. Got it. Yeah, and and I, I agree, and I think, you know, I mean, like, it's very interesting, I find, that like any of these... Um, seemingly unsolvable because we haven't solved them yet kind of problems. Some folks believe that they'll always sort of reside in the eternal black box of, of uh, you know, the, the category that humans will always ponder but never really know more about. What you're touching on is that through sort of brain modeling and understanding these systems, although we cannot at present say like, oh, you know, uh, these 400 neurons just fired in order, uh, you know, he's thinking about the color, uh, you know, uh, bird's eye green, you know what I mean? Like, we're, we're not aware of that, but that um, through, through an understanding of these networks, we're able to at least kind of grasp, you know, hints at what is happening, what correlates to what, and almost kind of um, unblack boxing the brain a little bit, if I'm kind of hearing you correctly, kind of getting a, at least some degree of an idea of what's really happening here you know, is it is it all completely a mystery? Or are there really some correlations between, like you had said, the bedroom of the brain to consciousness, etc.? Absolutely, and and what you say is critical because you know consciousness has content, which is what we're talking about. And most of the neuroscience studies the content of consciousness. What is it that is uh, um, you know going on in our brain when we see something green, or when we talk, or when we when we smell something, or or have a memory? Uh, but then there are systems in the brain which I'm talking about which are not the con- not regulating the content or the specific details of all the things we're conscious of, it's regulating the overall level of consciousness. Okay? And yeah. these are the systems that I think we've, we've really gained a huge amount of understanding of how these work and how, oh. they, how they regulate all of the content of consciousness by influencing the level of consciousness. The level of consciousness depends on the overall network interactions between widespread areas and the surface of the brain and these key critical regions deep in the brain, in the brainstem and thalamus, that regulate our, our level of arousal and attention 
and awareness. Got it. And, and um, you know, man, I, I feel like I could dive into that topic alone with you for the entire interview, but I, I'll have to hold myself back a little bit. I'm, I'm utterly fascinated by sort of uh, the gradations of sentience and awareness that, that we're yes. capable of. And I think that, um, you know, I'm as excited as anybody about sort of seeing progress there as, as a psychology fellow myself. Um, it, moving, moving forward a little bit into the, the future, um, because there's some particular technologies I'm interested in your thoughts on. In, yes. in the coming 10 years... Um, what, where do you predict, you know, I mean, right now, obviously there's been some pretty tremendous leaps in the last 10, uh, certainly in the last, you know, 20 or 30 compared to where neuroscience sort of was and the degree of black boxedness that, that our brain actually kind of existed as up until recently. Um, in the next 10 years, where do you foresee some of those bigger changes, uh, happening in terms of neuroscience's advancements and, and what does that ultimately mean? So in addition to maybe a better understanding of blank or a greater grasp of a certain brain function, um, what would that actually allow us to do? So where do you see those developments and what might what opportunities might that open up in the coming decade if neuroscience continues on its pace? Well, I'm going to give you a very specific example. Great. Um, something we've been working on that, that I'm very excited about in recent years. So, you know, uh, we discovered that when people have epileptic seizures, um, that usually affects one, one part of the brain, a, a local part of the brain. But the, the thing is, is that when people have seizures, they often lose consciousness. And it turns out, we discovered that, why does that happen? It doesn't make sense. Seizures happening in just one part of the brain. And we just said, you know, consciousness, you need big areas of the brain to be affected. Well, it turns out, what happens is that the seizures spread into that critical switch deep in the brain that turns on or off your, your awakeness. And when seizures invade that part of the brain, they flip that switch off. So people lose consciousness, not because the seizure itself is invading the whole brain, but it's, it's gotten into that switch and it's flipped off the awake circuit and the rest of the brain, away from the seizure, goes into what looks just like a deep sleep state. Okay, And when that doesn't happen, and people have a seizure that stays localized and doesn't reach that critical sleep-wake circuit, people have much milder seizures. They don't lose consciousness, they don't crash their car, they don't embarrass themselves in public at yeah. work or at school, and it's much better for people if their seizures don't do that. But when they do do that, it's really a problem. So we discovered this, this switch that happens in the brain during some seizures but not others and has a huge impact on people's quality of life. And we've now taken it to the next level and we've seen what can we do about that? Turns out that the technology for deep brain stimulation has progressed fantastically in recent years, and it's now possible, and it's already being done for movement disorders and for epilepsy and for, for chronic pain, to implant in safely into people's brains a stimulator like a pacemaker yeah. or like a defibrillator yeah. that's working on the brain, and that detects when a seizure happens and, and starts a stimulus. That's being tested to try to stop seizures, but you know, unfortunately, there are some people that no matter what we do, we can't stop the seizures themselves. Yeah. Medicines and even deep brain stimulation is not going to cure everyone of their seizures. But what this tells us is that there's another whole strategy we can take. Even if we can't stop the seizures, if we can flip that switch back on so people will regain their consciousness during and after the seizures, they'll be much better off. They'll be able to function much better in the world. And we found just this past year, and we published one paper on it. We have another paper coming out soon on this. In, in a, an animal model, we can flip the switch back on during seizures and after seizures. So we have, we have a, 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 a rodent model where they're, they're having a seizure, and the seizure 
causes the animal to freeze, stop in its tracks, look around, not be able to do anything, just looks at blankly at the side of the cage. And if in the middle of the seizure we start uh, um, stimulating the parts of the brain, deep in the brain that are important for arousal, we can flip the switch back on and the animal goes right back to exploring the cage and behaving completely normally. So I'm extremely excited about this because we have the technology, we have the knowledge now to apply this in human patients and we're going to work towards trying this in, in, uh, in human patients in the coming years where we can save people who have these, these terrible unpredictable episodes. We can detect when the seizures happen, we can automatically turn on the stimulator and flip the switch back on so that people can be awake, hopefully alert and normal, functioning normally or, or close to normally and not have the terrible repercussions of, of uh, losing consciousness with seizures. That's some of the excitement. Wow. And I think it's not just for epilepsy, the same kind of stimulation paradigm that we've developed, which by the way, depends on not just stimulating uh, with one simple uh, electrode, it's a, uh, an array of yep. multi-site, multi-contact electrodes in, in critical areas for arousal in the brain. It could be used not just for epilepsy, it could be used for other disorders of consciousness, like I mentioned earlier, coma, um, or, uh, or more importantly, people who are in a chronic, uh, what we call a vegetative state or, or a state where they're minimally conscious and, and can't function normally in the world. So there's hope, I think, for many disorders of consciousness with this kind of approach. Ah, so okay, so deep brain stimulation, and, and I, I know as well that, you know, at places like the Mayo Clinic, if I'm not mistaken, deep brain stimulation is even being applied for extremely severe depression. That's right. Um, and, and it seems as though, you know, again, being able to volitionally engage specific neurons is sort of different uh, than what we've done thus far in terms of treatments, you know, in terms of you know, therapies or in terms of even, you know, uh, pharmacological treatments. This is a very, very different uh, sort of game. Um, you know, do you see, you know, so optogenetics obviously kind of dials into the same kind of an area, similarly invasive, and I think some people say invasive and they mean it in like a, a bad way. I just mean, hey, we got to put stuff in there. I mean, it is invasive. Um, do, you, do you see optogenetics um, helping to kind of dial in the accuracy of what networks or types of cells are engaged in the coming decades in, in humans, or do you just see sort of these neural or these these um, uh, these these arrays that you were speaking of, sort of getting a deeper and deeper grasp of where to put them uh, in what exact tissues and how to kind of time their. their... I think yes and yes. I yes think, and yes. Okay. I think yes and yes. I think that we will. Uh, I think that we will use electrical stimulation first. Why? Because we're already doing it. Yep. Um, we already have the devices. We already have you know F. Uh, devices that are being used in humans now for therapy yep. uh, for a, a variety of brain disorders. And so here we're talking about using devices that are already approved. Um, we're just modifying where they're being placed in the brain and the strategy, the, uh, the, the purpose and the use of the device uh, for a different therapeutic um, goal. In other words, uh, improving cognition, improving uh, consciousness um, during seizures. So that's uh, going to come first, or improving consciousness for other disorders. Uh, and it's been tried uh, um, already uh, um, in, uh, in other disorders consciousness uh, uh, briefly, uh, but it needs to be improved, it needs to be done more. So I think that will happen first, as happening already, but I think optogenetics is tremendously exciting and will uh, continue to grow. Um, yes, there are uh, um, a lot of uh, challenges um, that sure. need to be overcome in terms of implementing it in humans and uh, and safely uh, carrying that out. 
but the promise is there that uh, it has a much um, more selective uh, mode of action yeah. on individual neurons. And I believe that eventually we'll be able to use that too. It will just take a lot more time. Yep. Um, until we until we get to that point. Got it. And and you know this is a maybe a, a little bit sort of beyond where the day to day you know uh, research goes, but it's certainly somewhere that that we will ponder here on Tech Emergence rather often. Um, you know, a, a lot of the future of neuroscience and sort of the intersection of, of technology and psychology potentially uh, posits, you know, again, the capacity to, to sort of tinker a bit with with uh, with our, our situation upstairs um, in, in ways that we, that we certainly haven't been able to do uh, in, in the past. Hypothetically, uh, if, if deep brain stimulation ends up treating severe depression really, really well and, and maybe the, we can you know, take down the risks and side effects drastically, as I believe we probably will with many other uh, strategies. Is it is it conceivable that maybe in the coming, you know, assuming it's assuming there's there's any monicum of safety, even in the coming maybe two or three decades, that there will be some kind of a market for volitionally modulating emotion. You know, if if we if we want to feel a certain way, or or let's say you know you had talked about awareness and, and alertness. Um, is it is it conceivable that assuming things are dialed in and assuming we understand kind of the safety precautions and we continue to de-black boxify the mind that we won't just be entirely ameliorative with uh, the intersection of technology and psychology, but that we may come to kind of an ethical precipice around you know enhancement and, and not even necessarily you know adding another computer brain or something fancy like that, but just being able to sort of leverage what we've got going on a little bit farther. Uh, than we are now. Do you even see that as sort of a remote possibility in the coming decades? Anything that's even worth pondering on your own end? I know most of your focus clearly is on the amelioration, but you would know a little bit yes. better than I. These are very important questions, uh, and as you said, these are ethical questions that we'll all need to confront. Um, are already very real when it comes, for example, to uh, uh, treatments for attention attention disorders. Yeah. You know, uh, the, the lines have become. Have become very uh, fuzzy between, um, you know, disorder and and uh, and efforts to enhance functions for people who don't have a disorder, and so similar ethical questions, of course, will come up for any therapies that or treatments that affect uh, emotion, mood, uh, and cognition. So these uh, these are very important issues that uh, certainly will come up and need to be considered with any any treatments of this kind. I think. Uh, you know, but, but first and foremost, you know, we got to look at the benefits that we're talking about yeah. here for for people who are really um, really suffering and really uh, have tremendously uh, impacted quality of life because of um, unpredictably at any time losing consciousness doing a, due to a seizure, yeah. not being able to drive, or worse, people who are in a vegetative state and can't interact or or be with their family members. So I think. You know, these very promising therapies, while of course, you know, as scientists and as human beings, we always have to consider the ethical implications of, of them being used inappropriately. Um, I think that doesn't diminish from the, the importance of, of moving forward and, and developing these treatments so that they can be used for, for the people who really need them most. Yeah, no, agreed. And, and as a sidebar, I also, I'm, I'm not inherently against enhancement in and of itself. I just think it's an interesting consideration. I think that almost everybody will agree that shucks, this person's awakeness flicks off all the time. If we could fix that, wouldn't that be good? I think everybody would kind of give that a thumbs up. Um, but if we were saying, man, you know, this guy walks around at a level four happiness all the time. He's really not yeah. super depressed, but he wants to walk around at an eight or a nine. Is that so wrong? There's a lot more people that would consider that to be uh, 
you know, at least kind of worth pondering. But I, I agree. I think that, you know, the, the trailblazing here will really happen in sort of the amelioration. Obviously, that's, that's where all the research is going down. Um, and and, uh, and there's, there's obviously such clear and, and, and amazing value um, you know, to, to those developments. Uh, Hal, I, I know that we're just about on time here. Um, I, I wanted to ask you as, as kind of a final question, you know, if, if folks are tuned in right now, they're really interested in neuroscience and the future of neuroscience um, and, and kind of getting a grasp on, on the, the developments uh, going on in this field, in addition to, you know, shoving their nose in, in, in all the various neuroscience journals, um, where might they go on the web to, to be able to stay plugged into really where the developments are here? I find that a lot of the time the experts kind of know the sites that are trustworthy and credible and, and what places are, are really good to stay hip uh, to the particular field, and I'd love to hear that from you. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that uh, a couple of places to look. First of all, I invite everyone to come look at our website, the Blumenfeld Lab website, which you can find easily uh, through search engines. It's just Blumenfeld. Search on Blumenfeld Lab. Big you time. can read more about what we're doing. Um, I would uh, encourage people to learn more about epilepsy. It's a, it's a disorder that is unfortunately in 2015 still stigmatized today, un, unjustifiably so. Um, treatment for epilepsy is, is growing in leaps and bounds. You know, over three quarters of the time we can really control seizures and people can live, lead normal lives. It needs to come out of the closet, out of the shadows, like other disorders like autism and and others in Parkinson's disease have really come out and are now in the public eye. Epilepsy hasn't done that yet. And mm -hmm. so I would really encourage everyone to learn more about epilepsy, help us remove the stigma from this important disorder, and help the people who are living with epilepsy and afraid to talk about it uh, come out and discuss it more openly so that they can uh, be accepted and lead normal lives. They really should. There's no reason not to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's very common about one in every hundred people have epilepsy, mm -hmm. and we just don't know about it because people, uh, pe people don't share and talk about it. So I would encourage people to go to the Epilepsy Foundation website, learn more about that. And then for neuroscience in general, the Society for Neuroscience uh, is, a, is, a, is a really tremendous organization uh, with international appeal, and there's a, many, many educational resources that people can find on the uh, website for the Society for Neuroscience. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like that might be the place to go, and obviously you've got your own lab there at Yale that folks can check out as well. Hal, I sincerely appreciate you sharing your insights here on Tech Emergence. Thanks so much. Thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, if you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, then be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, more than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Um, so with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>